Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Colquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a funny pairing that proves that good things do occasionally result from the existence of social media. Steve Albini and Max Collins. You almost certainly know Steve Albini's name and probably some of his work, too, but I'll share this brief summary anyway. As a musician, he has played in some incredibly influential bands, most notably Big Black and Shellac. As a producer, engineer, studio owner, he has helped make records by thousands of small independent bands and several huge mainstream ones, most notably Nirvana, with whom he recorded In Utero. Other notable credits include PJ Harvey, Pixies, the list goes on. Albini is also a poker enthusiast who holds a World Series bracelet, though that part of his life doesn't come up here. Throughout his career, Albini has been an outspoken champion of independence from the major label system and even penned a widely shared essay way back in the day about the general shittiness of the mainstream music business. Which makes it kind of funny that he's speaking today with Max Collins, frontman for the band Eve Six, who were sort of a prime example of the major label machinery in the 90s, through no fault of their own. Signed to a huge deal just out of high school, the band had a pretty massive hit with a song called Inside Out, whose chorus features the phrase, heart in a blender. Eve Six largely disappeared after the turn of the century, but Collins found a hilarious new way to connect with fans during the pandemic, Twitter. His no-holds-barred tweets are funny and self-effacing, and they gained him an instant following. He refers to himself frequently, even once during this podcast, as the heart-in-a-blender guy, and he openly shares his stories about other alt-stars of the 90s, his opinions on current and older bands, and even some of his personal life. Albini, no stranger to no filter himself, became a fan after the two started playfully sparring about the relative merits of Counting Crows. A Twitter beef was born. If you don't like that phrase, this is not the episode for you. Eve Six has since started recording and releasing new music, and the two talk a bit about that in this episode. They also get into Eve Six's financial history, the evils of major label deals in the 90s, and for a brief moment of non-playfulness, the idea of art as the antidote for the hellscape we all live in. Then there's talk of starting a new beef, this time with Dave Grohl. Enjoy. Thanks on Air Festival for allowing us to, uh, yeah, air our dirty laundry. I mean, you know, perennial beef never goes bad is what <laughs> is what I always say. And I think Steve has heard me say that and he's been parroting it around town. There was a tweet exchange where somebody said, you said perennial beef never goes bad. And then the Twitter guy said perennial beef. <laughs> never goes bad but it's already tainted i thought that was like above the rim twitter there above the rim a double plus reply yeah that was fantastic my name is steve albini i'm a recording engineer and musician i live in chicago i come from a punk rock background and upbringing and i lived through the 90s without really experiencing it so I first became aware of Max by his Twitter, which is uh, charming and amusing. And the self-effacing nature of his Twitter persona made me instantly like and root for him until, until we had to start a beef. <laughs> well, let me just start by saying I do think a lot of the effort to kind of rehab the marginal and the mediocre is kind of silly and boring. The beef started with Counting Crows specifically because right. I forget I forget what I said initially. I think I did a thread about how they got like predictably shat on by 
90s critics for being earnest and having an influence set that was more in the in the Van Morrison zone than like the punk rock or zone or whatever. But they had some good songs. I immediately reacted violently to the intimation, any suggestion that the <laughs> Counting Crows were not just categorically awful. Uh, I took specific exception to the idea that music that was emotionally vulnerable or emotionally open was not appreciated by the cool in the know people in the 90s. That was the starting point for our beef. But I, I'll be honest, my heart was never really in the beef as much as it was in sort of championing the sort of unsung, the, the less mainstream, less popular artists of the 90s who were, as I put it at the time, emotionally open. And of course, my tweet was reductive and I'm not doing very good at the beef right now. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, a little bit of a poke in the eye. You've made intimations in recent tweets. We're going to refer to the Twitter lifestyle like sort of nonstop. Like the Twitter oeuvre of one Max Collins is really worth a deep dive. So we're going to spend a lot of time in that territory. But you've recently on tweet, you have been referring to how young you were when you got signed up to be part of the mainstream big record label universe. Yeah. Can you just give us a story about how your band came together, how you got signed and how you became the heart in a blender guy absolutely yeah we started our band in high school i believe it was the end of our freshman year of high schools when john our guitar player and i met and we started doing little shows and stuff like that playing at all ages places that that would have us coffee shops what town is this this is los angeles we grew up in an area called la crescenta which is you know about 20 minutes, you know, north of what people might think of like the heart of the beast, I guess. But it feels removed. It's like in its own little valley. It's like a, you know, middle-class suburb, basically. So we'd have our parents drive us to like, you know, the anti-club and Eagles Coffee Pub and this venue in Canoga Park that I can never remember the name of, uh, Cobalt Cafe. And we'd play these shows and we'd make flyers at Kinko's and we started to get, you know, a good chunk of the high school coming out to see these shows. We were doing one at a place called the Natural Fudge Company. It was somewhere in Hollywood. Are you familiar with the Uranus Fudge Company in Uranus, Missouri? I'm not, but it sounds fantastic. It's fudge from Uranus. Sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'd hope so. We're doing a couple nights at uh, Comet Ping Pong on this tour that we just announced today. Maybe we should look into Uranus. So that's not e that's not even a gag. You're actually playing at Comet Ping Pong. Yeah, that's real. I forget how that came. I mean, it was a Twitter thing. I think they just reached out on Twitter months ago and said, you know, Eve Six, you should play Comet Ping Pong. And I said, yeah. And Absolutely, of course. Of course. So we're doing a couple nights there. But... Yeah, to get back to your question, we did our little show at the Natural Fudge Company. There was an A&R person there from a punk label called Dr. Dream that was based in Orange County. And they, they were like a label where the guys from kind of seminal Southern California, Orange County punk bands went to die with their, <laughs> with their newer bands or solo projects like Joe Wood from TSO. And she was like, I really like it. You like your set. You should come down and meet the rest of the, uh, the people at the label. We did that. Um, they offered us a deal. We signed a deal with Dr. Dream. We started to make a record with Steve Soto of Adolescence producing it. We started cutting drums. During those sessions, Dr. Dream hooked up this interview 
with this woman named Jennifer Harold who had a syndicated radio show. She came out, we did an interview with her and she recorded like five live songs. I was playing live in the studio. She said, I think you guys are good. I'd like to be your manager. We said, sounds good. And she knew an A&R person at RCA named Brian Maloof, sent him this, I'm sure it was a god-awful live recording. And he liked it enough to fly out and see a showcase that was also terrible. Like I remember just being so nervous. I remember our drummer dropping his sticks in the middle of a song, but they liked it and offered us a deal, bought us out of the deal at Dr. Dream. And we're still in high school. So we we signed the deal when we were juniors in high school. And it was sort of, in practice, it was more like a production deal, although it, you know, it, it was a record deal. Like we got an advance and stuff. But it was sort of with the understanding that like we'd finish high school and I think they wanted to see if we'd turn into anything that they could sell. And then you had the Heart in a Blender song on the first record and were hit straight away. Yeah. Yeah. We had the Heart in a Blender song. And I remember that A&R guy came and heard us play that song at a rehearsal space before we, we went in to do any recording. And he took us out to Musso and Frank's after that. After that session, he was like, yeah, you guys don't have it. Uh, <laughs> don't hear a song completely here. Hear you guys falling through the cracks. Sorry. He's like, tell you what, I'll give you a little bit of money. Get these songs off your chest. But uh, yeah. And it, uh, he'd heard that song. I mean, it, granted, it was before a producer got to it and chopped some stuff out of it and stuff. But yeah, they gave us a little bit of money and we hired a guy named Don Gilmore who had engineered some noteworthy stuff, hadn't ever produced a record before. And he came down and we recorded that song and a couple others. And when the a guy came out and heard it, he was like, oh, all right, here's a little bit more money. Here's a little bit more money that you'll owe me for life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That will still be paying Sony Records in 2022. Yeah. So there are a couple of things that I think are kind of emblematic of that era here in that you guys were minding your own business, playing your own shows. An independent label approached you about doing a record, and then they did a baton pass through Connections that a manager who attached herself to you made for you on your behalf. They did a baton pass to another label who then got you set up with a producer and an A&R person. So all of these people are now on the gravy train. All of these people have already gotten a cut of a record that hasn't even been made yet. Yeah. And that's before anyone outside your high school has heard you play. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of emblematic of that era, like the 90s era where like they were looking for things to become manias and they were just like clear cutting entire scenes. Anybody holding a guitar, if they could get them on paper, they would get them on paper. Even I mean, you described this deal saying it was sort of like a production deal. There were things more tenuous than that. Things like literally like one paragraph deal memos that people signed that kept them tied up for for decades. Yeah. So that's kind of emblematic of the experience of like the major label experiences. You have a bunch of people sort of attaching themselves to projects or like slicing into a pie which hasn't yet been baked. Yeah. And then you guys have to go earn all the money that pays all of them on your own 
Like they're not, you know, none of those people are any any longer involved in it. Like their in, their involvement is done, but now it's on you yep. to earn the money to pay them back. I, I want to point out that when I describe the underground and the independent world and all of the advantages that we had over bands in your situation, I, I'm not doing it in the sense that you guys were dummies and you didn't do it the right way. Yeah, yeah, I get I'm it. I'm well aware that high school kids are not going to be versed in the subtleties of, of the economics of putting records out, and they're not going to be like savvy businessmen. They're not going to understand the angles that are being shot on them. I'm, I'm perfectly aware of that. And I've said it before, but if, if as a teenager, when I first started getting into music, if somebody had come to me with a record deal, I would have signed the first fucking thing with a line on it. You know, like, you, you want everything I ever do forever for $100? No problem. You know, I, I, I would have signed everything away, like, on the spot. Of course I would have. That's the eagerness and the mentality that all of this business is built on. It's built on the notion that you guys want to make it. Um, you guys want your band to amount to something. And here are people who are professionals who are telling you that this is the way to do it. And of course, you're going to believe them that, you know, that's their profession. But in contrast to that, there, there did exist this parallel universe, the independent and underground scene where bands were sort of left to their own devices to figure out how to do things and, and scenes that were not ever going to be party to the mainstream success of the larger music business had to figure out a way to get records into stores and get bands on tour and all that sort of stuff. And the way that they devised was much more equitable. Mm. All the record deals that, you know, not all, but the majority of the record deals in the independent world are between peers. Like the people that run the record label are the same people that would come to the club and the same people that were in the other bands that you were playing with. And they were seeing this whole thing as a kind of a common project rather than right. like, this is my and my piece of the, of the pie and this is your piece of the pie. They, they were seeing the whole thing as something that we were all sort of trying to buck into sustainability. Right. So the deals were almost always 50-50 or splitsies. Like you'd play a gig at a club, no guarantee, take the money coming in, pay for the PA, pay for the flyers pay all the staff. If there's any money left over, you split it up in some equitable way. So the guy putting on the show made a little something and the band members all made something. And then the record deals were exactly the same. Like you try to keep all the costs under control, try to keep everybody's expectations in line, record as cheaply and efficiently as you can. Then whatever money you make on the recording, you pay off all your expenses and then whatever's left, you split it up. And typically that would be 50-50. That would be half-seas. I've done the math in public before, but that ends up being dramatically more generous to the bands than the sort of professional world that you were operating in. We had a very short existence operating sort of in that world because, you know, we were a pretty basic like pop punk rock band, you know, and we were playing backyard parties and all ages shows and that type of thing. And maybe our age was part of this too, but I think also that the ethos of the sort of scene that we were in, which I realize is, is when, when you hear the single, <laughs> there's like a cognitive dissonance there. And I'll sort of get to why I think maybe that occurred too, but we were totally unambitious. I mean, I, I remember talking to John, our guitar player and, and being like, Dude, if we we just get jobs at a coffee shop and we play we play rock and uh, you know this is great, 
I don't think it's virtue, but it, it, it's like a naivete that at least has some beauty in it. Yeah. That same naivete, you know, when a record company comes in, a major record company, I mean, that validation just as a starting point was like, oh, shit. I mean, that, that gets your ego, you know, in kind of a potent way. And yeah, there was no earthly way we were going to not sign a major label deal. Um, you gave me an intro. I just assume that people know who Steve Albini is. But Well, are, Josh said, feel like, free, if you, please, if, especially if you're going to butter me up a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to butter you up a little bit. I mean, Steve Albini has uh, worked on some of the greatest records of all time. I mean, this is just like an objective fact from Nirvana to the Pixies to his own music. And the fact that he and I have struck up this like online friendship is very beef, unlikely. Beef. Uh, beef. Sorry. Shit. Uh, this perennial beef is, uh, well, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so the main thing that the sort of thread of continuity here is that you as a teenager, got involved in a scene that was then exploited by the mainstream music business. Not just you, the scene, like every, basically everybody in your shoes, every, you know, any swinging dick holding a guitar got signed. And then all of those people for the rest of their lives are beholden to the structures that are implicit in that, that industry, right? And the way it manifests itself at the moment is that you're still unrecouped. You, a guy who had started out of the gate with a hit record, is still somehow magically unrecouped with your record label. So your record label can attach whatever income it can generate from your music. It can attach that music and keep all of that income because on its books, as far as it's concerned, you guys still owe money. Right, right. And I think people understand that when you sign to a major label, you know, the major label gives you money to record and stuff. You have to pay that back. You also have to pay back as you said in your thread, you know, like every expense, I mean, everything from dinners you might have with the record company to music videos, the costs of which were obscene <laughs> in the 90s, marketing, you know, PR, all of that stuff has to be recouped. And so, you know, the situation we find ourselves in now is like the terms of that record deal that we signed, you know, a baker's dozen years before the advent of streaming technology, you know, that's mapped on to 2022 Spotify, Eve six, getting a, a shit ton of streams, way more streams than we should be getting <laughs> on Spotify. Very, very popular in Lyfts and Ubers. Well, there's a thing that I've heard, I've read uh, that Lyft and Uber drivers do is when they see who's getting in the car, they adjust the playlist. And me, a white dude of a certain age, yeah. I unfortunately suffer the classic 90s alternative rock playlist. Any of these savvy drivers, like they shift, they code shift to... 50s white guy and i have to you know and so i have enjoyed music <laughs> yeah. of that era more in the last several years than i certainly than i did during the era yeah and i i say enjoy using the finger quotes that my friend tim midget <laughs> modifies by using three fingers for extra irony I've created an emotional distance between me and, and the word enjoyment right? so as to avoid ruffling feathers here. Right. The same way that you and I could be described as friends from like a, as a, a, from a very far anthropological distance, 
seeped with irony, but what we're actually engaged in is a full throttle beef. Yeah. Tooth and nail. That's part of the story here that's uh, not maybe not as often talked about. Nostalgia is a potent device. And with these streaming platforms like newer artists, artists that are trying to break, trying to compete, trying to, you know, in this like battle for attention are up against bands like mine, which like are an easy, you know, an easy sell. And because it's familiar. Yeah, there's a built in audience for people who have already liked something and it has meant something important to them during a developmental period of their lives. Right. You know, it's a it's a button that you can push fairly automatically. And for my generation, it was the Beach Boys and the Beatles and things like that. You know, and there's an argument that from an artistic standpoint, there was less to choose from then. And the cream that rose to the top had more sort of organic merit. That's one argument I've, I've heard. I've always hated the fucking Beach Boys. Like, they've always just made my teeth gnash. So I was deaf to that argument. But I buy it. I get it. I understand it. But as the population ages and you rotate through these people who have time and, and money to spend on their listening, people who are nostalgic for the 90s now... There's a leverage there that the record labels have because that was the last generation of artists yes. that had sort of ubiquitous popularity because there were MTV was played everywhere. Radio stations had playlists and radio still mattered then. So yep. in the 90s, there were still ubiquitous popular artists. There were everyone, you know, you go to, from town to town and the radio station would play the same songs, right? That's not the case anymore. I mean, there's no radio anymore for a start. The other thing is that now people are having sort of curated listening experiences on their own. Their their playlists, the the things of interest to them uh, that they're listening to are unique and they're defining them. They're like they're creating the landscape that they're listening to with a few exceptions. And one of those is in public spaces where like or th- things like taxi lifts and Ubers where a ready-made solution for an audience can be like sort of tapped into and the leverage that the record labels have is that the 90s was the last generation where people could be universally ubiquitously popular and also the last generation that were beholden to these kind of legacy contracts these deals where they had no control over their material right later generations of People generally found fame on their own and then got co-opted into record labels after they had already established a presence for themselves. So, for example, somebody like Chance the Rapper is not going to have to suffer the kind of indignity of having his record label control his music that you have. And the record label is going to make more money per stream on our million monthly streams because they have more totalizing ownership. Then Absolutely, they live with, yeah. with an artist who, right, like Chance the Rapper or or a new artist who's coming to a major label deal now with some leverage. And also all of these legacy masters that they're exploiting, all the work is done already. Like they yeah. don't have to pay anybody to do a mix of this song. They just yep. pop in a CD like, oh, no, no, we got it already. It's here. You know, that's a significant thing is like it's a especially during the pandemic when there's less overall activity in the music scene, like the record labels have this trove of archival material that they can continually re-exploit. And it allows them to keep the the wheels turning on the record business without anybody having to do any new work or having to pay any new bills. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata, and to track your earnings, and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. I'm impressed that you were able to do as much recording in the pandemic as you have. Like my band, we don't all live in the same city. We had a tour that was interrupted by the the first wave of the pandemic. And we didn't see each other in person for a year after that. Then during the brief lull this summer in uh, Caseloads, we got together and finished the album that we had been trying to finish the year prior. And we haven't seen each other since. So like we've seen each other literally twice in the span of two and a half years it was like a happy accident because we started recording before the pandemic hit just before the pandemic hit we finished an ep and then we were like oh this is fun let's just keep going and so we just kept going and we got that ep done that's out and then continued and we have enough for a full length and so that's the sort of on the eve of the sixth of every month, we're releasing one of these songs, but it's all already been recorded. We sort of just got in there in the nick of time. So I'm curious. I know that there are there are bands that have a sort of comparable level of success in the 90s who have like made a kind of a second career out of playing the 90s nights and package tours and things like that. Were you prior to your reinvention of the band, like, were you offered things like that or was that just never on the radar for you guys? No. Yeah. We, we've done all of those. I mean, we've, oh, really? we've, yeah, oh yeah. We've done the most crass ones. We're, we're now doing things differently and with some exceptions, there's some stuff that we've, that we've had on the books or like emails we had, hadn't looked too closely at where we've said yes to shows that, we would have made a different decision on. So you're going to be on a couple of 90s cruises coming up? We have a couple like super cringe ones for sure. But basically we had like some personnel change in our band a few years ago that kind of needed to happen. And John and I were able to sort of <laughs> do whatever this, you know, marginal psychedelic second act is kind of make these sort of, you know, punk songs and cocaine rock songs and stuff like that. The aesthetic is just kind of 
doing ex- exactly what we want to do, which whenever I, when I, whenever I hear an artist say that, I'm like, well, why weren't you always doing that? Were you just really into garbage earlier? Is that, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, there are a whole host of reasons for that. And, you know, and I'm centered in every single one of them like my own shortcomings, but we're doing it now and it feels really good. And it's also fun to confuse people. I mean, I, I, I'm really enjoying being confusing and I don't think that's condescending to my mind. I, I like enjoy being confused. One of the triggers that makes me want to listen to a piece of music a second time is that it b- slightly baffles me. Yes. Yeah. That's the quality in music that for me kind of gives it a transcendent quality is, is, if there's stuff in it that I don't know where to put it necessarily. And, and it, that's what kind of makes you feel like you're dreaming. Like, so yeah, like that, it, it has entertainment value, you know, it's generous. One of the critical things that I've read that resonated with me the most was that the very best art doesn't do all of the work for you, but it provides you with the enough information that you can get to a point if you engage with it directly. The problem with that is you are sometimes fooled by stuff that's just trivial and nonsensical. You're fooled into thinking that it has substance, right? Yeah. But the very best of that stuff, the very best art that is confusing on its face or that is somehow is slightly incomplete, that when you engage with it, like you're drawn into the world of that piece and you're your brain uses what you know about the world and about the art and about the artist, and it creates a complete experience of that. That, to me, that's always what I've been the most engaged by. It's why, like, some some things can be on their face quite stupid, but if you allow them to play out with everything that you know about them, you realize that you're actually looking at something amazing. Yeah. And that's just a far more gratifying experience. And it's the same with film or TV. It's like when you feel like you're just, you're being served up a thing, um, that's patronized, you know, but when you're almost collaborating with the piece, with your imagination to get it somewhere, it's like, that's, that's the stuff. Or if we're talking about music, that is powerful, <laughs> like re- really powerful, has has practical application in my life, can can like bring me back from the brink, you know, like to be, I mean, I'm the heart in a blender guy. I'm going to be a little dramatic, Steve. Uh, <laughs> but really like the antidote for fucking the hellscape, you know, and, and it's like, and that's the stuff when I'm like, when I don't know exactly where to put everything in my mind, that's the far more gratifying listening experience. You've expressed some skepticism of nostalgia uh, as a as a basis for art, and I, I'm 100% with you there. That's one of the reasons that I feel like I'm not that subject to nostalgia is that I feel like that's stuff that I've already dealt with. It's not me engaging with something in the moment. It's me kind of patting myself on the back for having already dealt with something or, or me sort of admiring my younger self having gone through an experience then. There's something kind of fatuous about that that, I, that doesn't resonate with me, that makes me... Whenever, I'm, whenever I, I feel like someone is playing to my nostalgia, I'm suspicious of that person. I'm suspicious of that motive. You know, like they're ta- they have an easy angle on me now. Like they know this about me, so they can say this thing. I mean, Spotify is mining your data and being incredibly manipulative. I mean, nostalgia, like already it's, it's, 
yeah, it's very manipulative. It's like, you know, the art of war stuff. It's like, they know stuff about you, you know, and they know that this is like a fix and it's really easy to do. And there's no overhead. Like you said, what I was getting at was that the only time that the nostalgic impulse seems greater than just a gimmick, greater than just like a, you know, a song and dance is when it, it, it puts you in a mind to reevaluate everything that, that you thought you had contextualized in the moment, right? You're not holding the past against it or for it. You've learned a lot since then, and you can now apply what you know and what you think now toward what other people would take as a settled frame of mind from then. And I, yeah. I mean, I, there's obviously an allusion here to some of the embarrassing things that I, or like God awful things that I've said and done in my life that I think it's my obligation to grapple with. It's my obligation to come to terms with the kind of thing that I used to do and say that I wouldn't do and say now. And whether that's an aesthetic choice or a cultural choice, like I, I, I still feel like that's a worthwhile engagement with the past rather than just, you know, sort of dismissing it as uh, something trivial in the past or sort of strip mining other people's reflexive memories. Just because a piece of art is old doesn't automatically make it attendant to some nefarious nostalgia campaign. And when I've when I've tried to, like, uh, evangelize about the Beatles, like young millennials, like can't stand the Beatles, you know, they really they really loathe the Beatles and just sort of see the reasons why, you know, they've been like forced down at everyone's throat. Well, the main thing is they just, everybody was talking about get back nonstop and it was just really irritating. I'm a, I'm a total sucker for that. Like I should love that. I still haven't watched it just because I like uh, those conversations just bored me to tears. I know what you mean, but even before get back, I mean, there's, there's like major Beatles antipathy out there. And when I've tried to like, just, you know, get people to give them a chance it's like you know put the headphones on close your eyes and like stop labeling it all hear it for what it is in this moment right now there's so many associations with the beatles but like they're as much as you can say an artist is objectively great in my opinion objectively great yeah Uh, i would agree so like allow yourself a new experience with this thing and you know i guess you know the record industry is is peddling them in the same you know i mean they're motivated by uh you know accruing money one thing that your story sort of ties in with this is like people already like the Beatles. People already like things that have already been hits and that are already resonant with them, right? You mentioned that in the beginning of your tenure as a musician, people were mistaken about things like, ah, you guys are, you guys are, have got nothing going on here. You know, this is, this is trash. You're going nowhere. And then of course, those self-same people ended up participating in your success as it were, right? Right. Making a whole lot more than than we would exactly the thing they right the takeaway is that they don't know what they're talking about like they don't know what's good or bad they just know how to get a piece of it when they're dealing with something like the beatles or like radio hits from the 90s they don't have to guess like they don't have to they're not subject to their own incorrectness and their own stupidity they can say yes this is already deemed popular and successful so i can't be i can't be wrong by backing this thing right exactly the whole nostalgia trip is that it's a defensive mechanism for people who have been wrong 
And, you know, they don't make any money when they're wrong. So they just do this defensive thing that they can't be wrong about. Industry people are just so, so afraid to have an opinion that hasn't like already been validated by multitudes. Even the way they do signings now, it's like there's never any, you know, risk involved. It's like the person needs to have so-and-so numbers on so-and-so socials and and everything else. It's never someone stepping out on a limb and saying, I think this is good and I'm going to risk my career for it. I mean, that's not that's not happening. I, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm speaking in absolutes, but I'm I'm pretty comfortable doing so. When your band like stopped being associated with a major label, was that because your contract ran out and it was done, or did they actively fire you? We got dropped after our third record sold a quarter of a million copies, which was an abysmal failure at the time. I guess this was 03. So like put up against the sales of records one and two, record one did almost 2 million, record two did almost a million, and record three did a quarter of a million. I mean, if you think about it just objectively, 250,000 of anything is a fuck, it's a lot. That's a lot of them. It's a lot of them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've never had a record that sold that many. Like, you put all my records together, you get that many. You know, know, put every record I've ever done together, you get about that. Maybe maybe a few more, but... Well, certainly records you've worked on have. Yeah, but I mean... (laughs) But yeah, I'd I'd take your point. It was also one of those classic house cleaning. Clive Davis came in. I forget who the president was before him, but, uh... A whole bunch of people got fired at the label. A lot of our, you know, uh, people that we knew who had some investment in the band or could at least say, I broke them. They were gone. And I remember when Clive came in, we went and had a meeting with him at uh, like the Beverly Hills Hotel in his in his suite. That you were paying for, no doubt. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 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 And yeah, we could just tell he, he was like he was blasting us the new Foo Fighters record like this. Like it was the best thing you'd ever heard. And we were like, okay. Do you, uh, hey, um, I know Dave Grohl. Do you want me to start a beef for you? Do you want a beef started with him? Yeah, I've been trying to start a beef uh, with Dave Grohl, but, you know, he's just, he's so, like, neatly above, uh, yeah, I mean, above it. He's <laughs> above the fray. Well, let me hammer on him a little. I'll see if I can get All a beef right. going. Yeah, see what you can do. Yeah, it, it was sort of like the writing was on the wall. And, uh, yeah, so we got we got dropped after record three. Did you make any money when you got dropped? No, but I know of people who have almost made a career out of getting dropped from major labels. (laughs) Like, it's insane. I feel like Uh, I'd be great at that. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like like an okay gig. (laughs) No, I I don't think we did. We stayed on the road for way too long for that record, too. So just, like, spending money on the road. And and it it was after that record that... All of the predictable things were going on, like, you know, personal shit and and alcoholism and addiction and all of those things. Well, at least you got that out of it. At least we got that out of it. Um, Thanks, RCA. (laughs) And we broke up after that for a few years and then started sort of slowly playing out live again. Well, it's been a pleasure roasting beef with you. Yeah, it's been it's been really nice. It's been nice beefing with. I'm going to be embarrassed about this for the rest of my life, for sure. Having to work all of this beef bullshit in here. I uh, look, you know, this is our cross to bear, my not friend. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Steve Albini and Max Collins for chatting. If you liked what you heard, follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform, and please rate us. It actually does help. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.